0: Welcome to Strength Roots Podcast, presented by Hyperthrive Athletics, where we dissect the mindsets, stories, habits, and tactics of elite performers. Strength Roots Podcast, the growth starts here. What's going on, guys? Welcome to this episode of the Strength Roots Podcast, presented by Hyperthrive Athletics. My name is Aaron, I'm one of your hosts of the show, and on today's episode, we have Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn. Dr. Michael Flynn is a nurse practitioner. She's a professor at Sac State University in the School of Nursing. She has her PhD and she's an expert in post-traumatic growth. Her journey and research for post-traumatic growth actually started when she died. Yeah, about 30 years ago, she was in a water accident. They still don't necessarily know exactly what happened or how it happened, but she died. She required 22 minutes of CPR. She was air flighted and remained in the hospital for a number of weeks before she even regained consciousness. But once she started on her rehab journey, um, she actually decided to go back to school and do research in this area and really see how people come back stronger from traumatic experiences. So she has a ton of insight and input, especially during this time of COVID-19, how people can come out of it stronger as well as other experiences in their life. So I'd encourage you to listen intently, take some notes, and without further ado, here we go. So thanks for coming on. We're excited to kind of dig into your story and talk about the research you're doing.
1: Awesome! Thank you for having me. I'm super excited about this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, first, let's kind of start about the uh, traumatic experience you had in your life, and kind of uh, obviously it was very life changing, and, and kind of how that set you on the path that you're currently on. Yeah, and um, so it's so funny when you know you ask that question because like I was
1: thinking about this and the research that I've done with people who have gone through extreme events. Traumatic events, and have come back. When you talk to them over time, which I've had the ability to talk to them over time, you really start to see that the event becomes so second to that they want to talk about what they're doing now. And that's kind of when you said, "Oh, we want you to talk about your event." I went like, "I want to talk about my research," but the event that started it all really was—it's um, actually this will be 30 years this year. Um, I died. And I, mother, wife, mother of three, very active person, triathloning, marathoning, all of that, and had this very crazy experience. So I don't know if your listeners have children who are on a swim team, but my children were on a swim team. And we had a championship meet and it was at Jesuit high school pool there. I have zero memory of any of this. I have some memory of the couple of days before, but the event, my event happened on a Sunday and I don't remember anything and probably for a month after that. So I don't remember being in the hospital or very little of being in the hospital or anything, but Apparently what I was told happened, um, I'm super competitive and they were having a fun adult relay before they were having the final swim of the kids. And I was told I grabbed my husband and a couple of friends said, come on, we're going to swim this and we're going to win this. And I'm going to swim last because I'd been doing a lot of training for triathlon, so I'd been doing a lot of swimming and I got in the pool, I guess I swam the last leg of the relay. I finished at the side of the pool that was 13 feet deep. Um, I was told that the timer asked if I needed help out of the pool. I said, no, I'm fine. And I just sunk to the bottom of the 13 feet of the pool. And the timer said to my husband, hey, your wife's not coming up. He's, oh, she swims all the time. She just, you know, sometimes you go to the bottom of the pool and you just kind of jerk up and come back up. Go, ah, she's not coming up. So my husband dove to the bottom of the pool, got me to the side. And luckily, since there were a lot of children there, there were a lot of parents there. And there were a couple of ER physicians. Bruce Gordon was there. Uh, another physician, um, Stuart Guarini, Gary Ryle was there. And I actually got 22 minutes of CPR at the poolside. They landed a helicopter in the football field at Jesuit and life flighted me to UC Davis. And my heart, according to Bruce Gordon, stopped again in the helicopter. He got it going. And that's when I hit. UC Davis and as people said, the life that I was planning on having was gonna change. And I had no idea how all that was going to come out. But yes, like I said, I had zero memory of anything. The very first, so I was in the ER in UC Davis and ICU. Then I was transferred from UC Davis to Sutter Memorial Hospital. Uh, which isn't there anymore, but I was uh, transferred there. And I don't remember anything except maybe a couple of weeks after it all happened. I just remember one, I, I just remember sitting up in a hospital bed and I saw it was, I didn't realize it was at nighttime, but my brother-in-law and sister-in-law were at the end of the bed. And they said, they saw me wake up. And cause I guess I, you know, was kind of not talking to a lot of people. And they said, are you okay? And I said, Yeah, yeah. They go, Do you want anything? And my favorite meal is a cheeseburger, French fries, and vanilla shakes, my favorite meal. And um, so I said, Yeah, I'm super hungry. Can you can you go get me um, well? You know those things, they're round and they have yellow things on it, and they come with these long things that you can put salt on, and you come, and I want a cup of that white cold stuff with the straw and you can drive through places and and that's how I started out. I mean I had um, I could articulate, but I had horrible aphasia. so I could not capture words. And also, obviously I had some significant um, uh, not only cognitive delays, but also memory things. So when they brought, I didn't know this, but I was just coming off the respirator and they brought my husband into ICU and the doctor told my husband lean over and say hi to her. So he said, hi. And the doctor said to me, and I don't remember any of this, but said to me, who is that? Do you know who that is? And I said, yes. And they said, who? And I said, Jude, and that's my brother. But he's tall and dark hair and everything. And my husband's going, oh, my God, what is happening? And then when they brought my children in to see me, I do remember that. And so my son wasn't quite two and my daughters were seven and eight. And they said to me, do you know who they are? And I looked at them and I said, yeah, I I know, I know, I know. I just don't remember how. And then, you know, coming home, I remember standing in my kitchen, and I would just look at my children. And I'd say, "Where are the dishes? You know, what did I cook, and what did I wear?" So, yeah, it was. That's kind of where it started, and yeah. um, it was tough. It was a tough comeback. So.
0: So once, you know, after you come home and, you know, the whole, you know, all that stuff started happening, what, what was the recovery process like? And what were the, was like the first step of even, you know, starting to rehabilitate?
1: Well, the first, the first step, so, you know, I'm not a professional athlete, but I would say I was kind of borderline elite recreational you know, I was up there, I was taking, my athletic stuff was very serious to me. And I identified as an athlete. I identified as a marathon runner, I identified as that. And so here I am 35 with three children. And so when I asked the doctors, well, when will I run again? Oh, you're, no, mm-mm, you are no mm you will not run anymore. I said, well, when will I swim again? Oh, no, 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 that's not gonna happen. And so to me, the first part of it was just getting somebody who would listen to me and because they just could not understand you're alive. Why do you care about that? Why is that important? But people don't realize that, um, and especially in today with COVID-19, they may think that was my socialization. That was my mental health. That was how I, you know, I had, that was how I became the better mom, the better wife and everything, because I was able to do that. And when that's taken away, you don't just like say, okay, that's no big deal. I don't have to do that anymore. So the first part of it was really getting somebody to listen to me and recognizing me getting back into some activity was important. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of, there's a lot that went on with that, but luckily I did come And he's still a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Dan Van Hammersfeld, who's a runner. He's a cardiologist. And he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I just want you to relax. And he started me out in cardiac rehab. Well, that was huge. To know that I could do some activity in a safe place and just start walking again. And then I started, you know, running again and started kind of getting some, you know, traction behind that but that was the first thing just hearing somebody that would listen to me and think this was important and you know I think when I talk to people now they go well you know everybody wants their life back I want it back exactly the way it was and I never tell people that's probably not going to happen I just say okay let's do first things first Because I think over time, and what happened to me and I talked to other people, is my life isn't the way it used to be. But I have recaptured the things that were most important and added onto that other things that were way more important. But just that somebody listened and said, okay, if that's what you want to do, here's how we're going to start. And so that was a big thing. And then also... One of the things that I have seen with um, in my research, and I always say to this to people, um, people who are finally willing to ask for and accept help are going to do better because I'm so competitive and like I'm, you know, The oldest girl in a family of six. And I was always in control and always on top of things and always, always. And I had to really come to this understanding that what I was going through was way bigger than any challenge I had had previously in my life. And there was no way I was going to get through this unless I. Gave you know, gave some control and found some way, some other people to help and took their advice, and followed it and went for help. That that was just huge. So
0: yeah, that was one of the things I was going to ask you is the people who have kind of that um, a leader in their life or a mentor or a coach helping them come back through it. Yeah. Um, but also too, I feel like there's you know two sides of the to the story because. You know, you had the people at first who said that's you're probably not going to happen. You're not going to be able to do these things. Mm-hmm. But it was when you had that you know mentor that came in your life that said, it might not be as it was, but I feel like you know I'm hearing you, and I feel like we can actually make steps to to get you going in the right position. Mm-hmm. So it's like in your research, is there many people that are able to come back and recover not having that help? No, no,
1: there, you know, it's, it's sort of, I was, um, one of the things about being home a lot too, I love watching documentaries. I love sports documentaries. And I was watching one about Jimmy Balvino. Is that how you say it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things he talked about in his, in the, in the documentary they had about him was, and am like, I'll get emotional with this you have to have somebody who believes in you. And he talked about his father, one person who just said, hey, I got my bags packed. When the NCAA thing happens, I'm going to be there. And he talks about this notion of you have to have somebody who believes in you. So when I talk to people who have gone through a variety of things, one of the things that I can see clearly Somebody said yes. Somebody said, hey, let's work on this together. Let's figure this out together. We will make this work. And you just, it's very rare where I will see somebody completely independently pull themselves out of a really crummy spot and actually become more resilient and grow and find meaning in it completely independently.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about maybe, um, you know, somebody who is in that mentorship or coaching role, helping somebody come through, uh, you know, some traumatic event or, you know, some type of stress. What are some steps or, and we can even talk about what you do with MetaHab and, you know, the steps that you have. How do you, you know, being realistic in you know somebody's um you know the the trauma they had in their life but how do you take over that coaching role and help somebody get through something
1: well the very first thing i say um and i i do want to kind of give you really before i go into that i have to tell you one of the people that was most helpful and you might know or i don't know if you know sally edwards who started Fleet feet
0: mm-hmm. okay yeah
1: so I did master swimming with her and I've just known Sally for forever and a year after my accident, almost to the day, a year after my accident, she lives in the same neighborhood I live in and I get a knock at the door and Sally standing there with fins, goggles and said, and a swim cap and said, we're getting back in the pool and I we re- getting back in the pool. And you do that and say, so that is a, you know, so things like that, those are the kinds of people that, you know, care about you enough to take you there. But one of the things that I would say about when you're looking at people who do that, and I just think this is so key. I always say to people, this is not my life. This is your life. What do you, excuse me, uh, uh, what do you want to do with that? So when I teach students, uh, you know, and we talk about trauma, I go, it's not, you don't need to have the answers necessarily. You need to ask the right questions. You need to ask the right questions because this trauma events are such profound vehicles to grow. And how that growth occurs. And we have some, you know, there's some standardizations in terms of timelines and what people do at different times and how that, how they move through. But there, you know, it really is such a self, you know, self growth thing. So I always talk with people and I go, first of all, I say, tell me your story. I have to have them tell me their story because in the research that I've done, I've noted that there are certain characteristics and what I call facilitating conditions that I hear and see over and over again when people have done well. So I have them tell me their story. The three biggest things I note in people who have gone through tough stuff and come out of it, not only survived, but thrived. Three things I see. Number one, that they were willing to ask for and accept help. Number two, they held on to the smallest, is even my that sliver of hope. Some way, they just just were not going to give it that hope. And then ultimately, they found a purpose. They found a reason. There's some reason for me to keep going. So I let them tell, I just go, tell me your story. And in their stories, I hear those things and what i tell them after that is i'll say look at people who have done well have done this 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 exactly what you said because a lot of times what happens when people are going through this and this is one of the fundamental fundamental assertions i have with metahab in that is sometimes people underestimate their capacity and it isn't until they're really hit with it that they went wow And I will say, did you know you had that in you? Did you see that in yourself? And uh, so many times when I'm working with people, they'll go, oh my gosh, you've been so helpful. I go, no, all I have done is help you uncover what is already there and take it to the next level. So, so much of that coaching is just, this isn't about me, this is about you. It's like with your children. You know, when I finally, as a parent, started recognizing, I told my kids, your college education isn't about me. I already have degrees. I don't need, this is you. This is about you. And you start letting people go. And that allows people to understand their strength, their capacity, and it gives them some control. And you have to give people control in their life. And that's what that cardiologist did for me. He asserted that I could anticipate some control in my life. So instead of everybody telling me what I couldn't do, and I don't live with that at all, I focus on what you can do. It's like when I, I, I do where I work with, metahab and with addiction dependency. And I'll give them a list of characteristics and I'll give them a list of facilitating conditions of people who have done well. and I'll say, fill those up, check off what you have. And they'll all of them say, Well, oh, you want me to check off what I don't have? I go, No, what am I going to do with that? What am I going to do with that? I'm not going to teach you what you don't. I want to know what you have, and we're going to expand and build on that. And that, when you get people starting in that growth mindset, that mindset about, I got that, and I accomplished that, and then you help them, you really do. And I'm sure you three gentlemen, when you work with the athletes you work with, I can imagine you can tell so many stories about people who never thought they could do something and they did it and you go, that didn't happen. That was always there. I just opened a door and that's what trauma does. It opens a door for you to really assess and feel like, like, what do you got?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love that right there because I mean with everything it's and and you just explained it perfectly It's healing comes from within and until you are given that safe place to do the healing from within Then it's very hard and with that external Help of someone that's you know pushing you and making you realize that it's it's you right you have to take action and realize that it's I can't necessarily do it for you no. but let's but let's do it together and mm-hmm. s- find a way to like you said you know create those repetitive successes and then let's get this confidence back
1: right That's awesome. and I love that I love that whole idea of confidence and and it, you know and kind of a good example of that too I love it when you said let's do it together but you like I remember so I'm just gonna brag a little bit, but all three of my children were D1 athletes, two were soccer and one was water polo. So we went through the whole thing with the coaching and the all you know, getting all that stuff. And I just remember my son was getting ready and he's a goalie. And so he was kind of figuring out where he wanted to go to school and all that. And he's a pretty confident guy, but he was like a junior in high school and he was just kind of dragging his feet on getting into touch with some coaches. And it just came to me one day I bet you know I bet he's nervous so I said to him you know Keenan, why don't we just sit down together and let's just start looking at certain colleges you're interested in and who's on the soccer team what the goalie is and blah 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 and I did and I just sat down next to him and you could just see we started kind of going and then he took it all over but sometimes you just, like you said, you create that. I love how you say you create that safe space. You just go, yeah, I'm right here. And then they can just kind of take it over on their own.
2: So I I completely agree that someone needs someone to lean on a lot of the times, or at least you need a place where you feel comfortable and um, like you can open up to that person. And especially when you're going through trauma, I think you need someone to lean on, mm-hmm. but in a time like now, when we're going through a collective trauma, how can we um, be a resource for each other when we're all kind of experiencing the same thing at the same time? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm.
1: And that's exactly why we can be a resource for each other, because we are experiencing this. And so mm-hmm. again, um, what I always start out with, because this is just the only way I can start out is, well, what can you do? hmm you have to always look at what can you do and then we also i will tell people look at research has shown that we have to socialize and you know this is so unique too because you know, I live part of the time in Sonoma. So we've been through the Sonoma fires and we've been through, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so that's when you see these collectiveness coming together. Well, now we're told, oh, you got to be there for each other, but you can't be that close mm-hmm. to each other. So it's sort of a unique thing. So one of the things in the stages of metahab that come in is the stage um, four where I call adaption and adjustment. Mm-hmm. so you just go you have to adapt yeah and i like you how can you adapt you've got to get this done but how can you adapt to that and i love that term too because i was very um a privilege that i was actually in london at the olympics when the, the olympics were in london and i was doing a presentation on uh post-traumatic growth and metahab and athletes and at this present they had a lot of um Athletes who we used to say are like disabled athletes, but they don't call them that. They call them adaptive athletes. Mm-hmm. And I went, I love that word because it's all about well, you've got to ski, you just adapt it and do it this way. Mm-hmm. So we have to be at home, but we then we figure out well, we have to adapt and adjust for this period of time because there's going to be an end. There's going to be a reentry into life. So you have to adapt and adjust and kind of make things happen so you can continue to move on. So within that adaption and adjustment, again, I always tell people, what have you used before?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, you've been isolated before. You've been sick or couldn't get out of the house or snowed in or whatever. What have you done before? And so, you know, you just help people rediscover the gifts and the strengths that they've already had.
2: Yeah. And I think it's, it's so important right now because there are so many things that are out of our control. Yeah. That's why I encourage people so much to stick to a routine, find a oh. routine, even in these like troubling times because oh, yes. the more that you feel like you are in control, at least in some aspects of your life, you're going to have a lot more. It's, it's going to be a comforting um, experience for you to wake up at the same time every day, maybe eat the same breakfast, go on a walk at the same time. So I think it's just the small things of finding a routine like that in a world where there's so many things that are out of our control at the moment that Mm -hmm. at least it gives you some semblance of confidence and comfort in what you're doing.
1: And I, you know, I really, I love that because the other thing, and this just goes with athletes or college or whatever you're trying to accomplish, you institute a discipline around that. And people who can discipline themselves around that, and I find it so... I've been running for years, but I still recognize I need to discipline myself with my social people because if I'm left up to myself, I never run as far, as fast, as well. So even now, even I'm social distancing, but I still have people on a regular basis that I meet and we plan out what we're gonna do because Like I said, I feel like I'm a pretty strong person, but left on my own, I just won't run all those miles or I won't run as fast or, you know, Mm -hmm. so putting people around and helping them discipline you as well is huge. The other thing I will tell you, I was uh, listening to this one speaker. He's so, God, I wish I could think of his name, but one of the things he said, One of the things that they've noticed in some of the most proficient, successful people, one thing, they make their bed every morning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I tell people, I've told my kids that for years and they still don't follow it as much, but making your bed because you get up, you know, it's like when you're prepping for athletic stuff, you know, you're prepping and you're making your bed and you're starting to think about the day and you're getting things going and you're, you know, there's a lot going on in your head besides just making the bed or getting your sports equipment ready here.
0: Mm-hmm. So once after your recovery process, how long was it until you went back to school and started that process of getting into research and what really made you even want to do that?
1: Well, the, the big thing was, uh, and, and the mo- probably besides be not being athletically able, um, I just realized that cognitively and intellectually i was pretty messed up and that scared me i mean it really did because i didn't know if that would ever come back and that's probably one of the things that really prompted me to say yeah i need to go to the speech therapist and i need to do that and so um, that took some time and that was the most frightening thing because the things that i was just you know always so into and you know I am Catholic, I'm religious and I love my family and I love athletics and I love my mind. And a lot of stuff was gone and I had to rebuild that. So as time went on and I did go back to speech therapy and I worked on things cognitively. And again, um, Dr. Dan Fields, I was in co-practice with um, Dan Fields and he brought me back a few months after my accident into practice. And he really helped me with my clinical practice. So he would see patients with me and help me get that together. And also, I uh, went to UC Davis to get my NP licensing. So I went back to UC Davis after my event accident. And I said, can I just sit in classes again? So I would just sit in classes at UC Davis in their nurse practitioner program and listen to that. And then Dan helped me get back clinically. And you just start getting some traction. You just start going, you know, today's a little bit better than yesterday. And you start. So I just decided, literally, I live a couple of miles from Sac State. And I thought, you know, if I really want to get my brain going, I'll go back to school. That's it. I'll go back. I'll get my master's. So kind of interesting, I went back to Sac State. I walked into the division of nursing. I went to the front desk. I said to the secretary, Here, here's my name and you know, I'm an NP and I want to come back at my master's. And I've had this event and I don't know how well I'll do, but I'd like to try. So as I was saying that, the woman, Dr. Robin Nelson, who was the division chair at the time, came walking by and she looked at me and she said, who are you? And I told her, she says, what happened to you? And I told her, and she goes, I was there that day. She was there the day I had, she had a daughter on another swim, te- a swim a team. And she said, I was there coming in my office. So I went in her office and she was another person that just got me going and helped me. And, you know, it just, it was not, here's the thing. It wasn't easy, but it was worth it. You know, it wasn't easy, but it was worth it because it just, and I, from what I know, and it's interesting now at Sac State, one of the courses I teach is in neuroscience. So I look at what the brain can do to heal itself, but it has to be engaged. It won't do that independently. And I tell my students this all the time. If you want to get big biceps, you don't just sit around thinking, I want big biceps. You have to engage. And the more you engage your brain, and we know about the healing process and the plasticity of the brain. And I'm very convinced that pushing myself two years after pushing myself into that was huge in eventually going back and getting my doctorate. So I did get my master's and I studied people who had survived death events because I wanted to know if they'd gone through the depression and the cognitive changes and the all the stuff you go through. And then I, um, it's kind of funny, I got my master's and I started teaching at UC Davis and they're in PPA program. And I was working, seeing patients. And one day I was coming home from work and I had this little voice in my head that said, you know, you weren't resuscitated to work more. And I thought about that. I went home and saw my children. I told my husband, and I just said, Mm-mm, I'm not going to do this. So I left my position at, at UC Davis and I just went back to seeing patients clinically and just worked two days a week. And I will never regret that. It was great. But during that time, I would see patients or I'd read a book or see a movie and you'd see people had gone through horrible things. Not only did they survive, but they thrived. And not in spite of what happened, but as a direct result. And I was fascinated by that mentality. So I decided when my daughters were pretty much out of college, my son was just getting ready to go. So I was um, 48 years old or whatever when I went back to get my doctorate. And that's what I wanted to study.
2: Was there ever a moment before you went back to your master's, before you really got back into schooling, was there any fear that you didn't have the capability to actually succeed? I'm afraid now. I'm afraid, you know, I mean...
1: There's, people go, are you afraid? Go, absolutely. I tell my students, I'm afraid before I give you your lecture. Did I prep? Did I do this? Do I have what it takes? There's a, I'm afraid things aren't going to work out with MetaHap. I mean, there's, you know, so absolutely I was afraid. And I knew, you know, I was so in control before. And I was so on things before. And when that was not there, And I had to rely on other people and other things. That was a real wake up call. And um, yeah, so before I do anything, I can remember the first day. I can remember this the first day I was sitting in my first doctoral class. And I was just like this I had my pens and paper and I had everything all. And I was like, oh my God, what the heck am I doing? I'm going to get a doctorate and i have not you know and i came from not recognizing who my children were a few years ago so but fear absolutely fears there all the time it's just right under that surface
2: <laughs> have well, do, you, do you think that the entire experience as a whole has made you more comfortable in that sense of fear, but still being confident in your Uh abilities?
1: Um, I think I just, I don't know. What I I tell people now is um, when they say, well, we need to help people get over this, or we need to help people get over it. I go, no, you don't. You need to help people use it. So I think I've used, I've learned, and I haven't even really thought about that. But I think what I do is I use that fear Mm -hmm. and um, it makes me mad. (laughs) You know, it makes me mad. Mm -hmm. Like, are, are, am I going to let that control? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. You're letting that control that? Like, makes me angry. And when I use it as that, Then I go, okay, that can now break me to the next level.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. But I mean, I tell people all the time fear and anxiety, those are triggered, those are things you should listen to because that's telling you you need to, that's your body telling you, you need to do something. Mm -hmm. You can freeze, you can complain, or you can get in the business of moving on and showing fear. You know, really quick, I'll say there's a um, a book uh, I love reading. It's called uh, Natural Born Runners. And it talks about these ultra, ultra marathons. So the furthest I've ever run, I've done a couple of 50Ks. I've run several marathons and some 50Ks, but I have friends that have done, my husband did a 50 mile. I have friends that have done hundred miles and all that. But one of the things they in this book, Natural Born Runners, there's a woman, Pam Reed, and she's done... I mean, like 100 milers, 200 miles, crazy, crazy, crazy. And she talks about encountering the beast. And she says, I love it when I see the beast because that means I have pushed myself. And every time I see that beast, I know, yes, you have pushed. And I tell people that story that encounter your beast, that could be your fear, and go, yeah, good. Because that means. I'm pushing myself. I'm getting better. And I know better and better. Every time I encounter that beast, I have a better way of dealing with that
0: beast. Earlier, you mentioned kind of the three steps to the recovery process, the um, asking for help, Mm -hmm. having that sliver of hope, and then, you know, having a purpose. And I think having that sliver of hope is huge because it's not just a linear process. It, you know, sometimes it gets worse before it gets better. Right. And so, you know, having that hope through those times that are tough and just kind of, you know, leaning into the fear on those days where it doesn't seem like it's ever going to, you're ever going to come out of this hole. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's, that's huge having, you know, just that little bit of hope and and somebody that's, you know, just slightly encouraging you on a day to day basis. Um, So let's talk about... Let me just
1: say really quick, I tell people, it's usually always going to get worse before it gets better. So I don't care what healing process you're looking at, whether it's a fractured bone, whether it's a laceration, whether it's whatever, an infection, it always gets worse until your body catches up and gets on top of the healing process. So when people go through things depression, whatever I go. I used to use the word normalize. I don't like that word anymore. I use the word expected. I expect you to lose it. I expect you to, because that's part of the process. That's not an abnormal reaction. That is a normal reaction to the abnormal thing you're going through.
0: Yeah. And I think if people have that, you know, expectation up front that there are going to be those days and it's going to get, you know, a little bit worse before it gets better. I mean, just to even know that, you know, uh, up front is huge for, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: you know, getting through those tough times.
1: Absolutely.
0: So kind of talking about your research now, um, Mm -hmm. you know, what are, what's, what are you currently researching and what's kind of, you know, exciting you and and what's really intriguing you lately?
1: Well, and the thing that really exciting me is um, I don't, need to research any more about post-traumatic growth and resilience because there's so much research out about that and we know that happens and that happens all the time and people go, I go, I did not make up post-traumatic growth. Tadeki and Calhoun and some other people came up with that and we know that that has happened forever and ever. The thing that excites me is continually to look at a strategy a simple strategy, a simple pathway, which is MetaHab, which is the stages I have in MetaHab, that encourage people to do that and also engaging people in that process. So I'm trying to work with groups and organizations to establish that. The other thing that I'm very intrigued with and excited about is um, I have just started a little bit of a collaboration with Dr. Sharon Furtak at Sac State who's a neuroscientist, a bioneuroscientist, And she looked at pathways in rats, pathways, the fear pathway. So I'd heard her speak and kind of, and then I met with her separately. I go, I work on resilience and post-traumatic growth. And she said, interestingly enough, we're meeting. She wants to shift her research and look at that. So I kind of am interested in collaborating on research around that. Um, I think the other thing that just gets me very excited is to work with individual clinicians and work, again, with organizations in instituting into their existing rehabilitation programs this theme of post-traumatic growth and MetaHab, which is a clinical pathway to achieve that. So that's where I'm constantly getting into. And then just basically the awareness of it all, just having people aware. Because the other thing I'll tell you is when I talk, people get it. The latecomers, administrators and all those, those are the latecomers. But the people, when I talk to them, they go, oh my gosh, how come nobody's ever talked about, I know this, they feel it, they see it. So that's what, so the neurobiology is very exciting to me and I'm hoping to do more collaboration with Sharon. Um, I do have a course at Sac State called Traumatology, an introduction to post-traumatic growth. I would like to think about doing a graduate course in that. And then, again, just continually to engage people in looking at a variety of ways to institute this theme and this process into existing programs. And there's everything that you can do with that.
0: Can we talk a little bit about the MediHab process and and the steps?
1: Sure. So um, when I did my, um, I'm sorry, my clock's going up, When I did my initial doctoral research, I interviewed six people who I had identified as going through significant trauma, but had come out of it doing well and grown. And so I taped their stories and asked some probing questions and all that. And so I would listen over and over again. And I just saw there was a system. I could see within their stories, a system. And one of my colleagues who I was talking to about this, Dr. Louise Timmer said, you know, there's stages there. And I went, that's it, that's it. You see stages. So I have identified six stages of meta habilitation. So the first stage is the acute, and let's, we can kind of think about it in terms of COVID-19. So the first stage is the acute stage It's like, oh my gosh, what just happened? And then the second stage is what I've identified as a turning point. And people make a conscious decision. And I always say people kind of go, I have no idea how I'm going to get over this, but I am making a decision to move forward. And I still don't know how that's going to unfold, but I'm going to make that decision. Once they make that decision, it's stage three, You think about what you, there's tons of therapies, complementary and traditional therapies and you have your families and other people help you get into that, which is what we've done with COVID-19. We're at home, what can we do to make this happen? And then the fourth stage is like, people need some chill time. They're adapting, they're adjusting, not to life forever, but for right now, I need to like, what did this all mean? Where am I at? Where do I wanna go? And then the fifth stage, they get back into life. Some way, somehow, it might not be the same thing. Most of the time it's different. And what I will hear from people is going, you know it's weird? I always wanted to be a teacher and I wouldn't do it because I couldn't give up this job. But once that door closed and this time opened up, I went back to school and became a teacher, and I really like it. And so they really love this new life they have. And then the sixth stage is metahap it's really taking on the future. And that's when you have developed this mindset that it's never that nothing bad is going to happen again, it's never that you're never going to be afraid again or get messed up again or whatever but you don't stay there that long because you have developed this growth mindset that you recognize it's your effort Mm -hmm. that will pull you through and you rely on things that you've learned and adjusted from the future. So
2: yeah, that's That's sort of the stages. I think it's, it's so helpful that you've given a description to this process because what I've found is that the largest stages of growth for me personally in my life have been following some of the most difficult struggles, right? And I think everyone can completely uh, look back on their life and agree with that and find it in their own life, find examples of that. But it's so difficult when we're going through the trauma or the Mm -hmm. adversity to have the appreciation of in the long run, this is going to help me grow. But if they have a better understanding in the back of their mind of the process of dealing with trauma and how it's actually going to, in the long run, create, um, you know, growth, like inevitable growth and exponential growth, it's going to make going through that adversity even easier if you understand the process and where it's leading.
1: Ah, I like that. Yeah, I, I tell my students all the time that you must celebrate successes Mm -hmm. you must acknowledge that but the fertile field of growth and development comes in adversity
0: Mm -hmm. would you say
1: go ahead well that's one thing i I would like to throw this out though so when you do research it's really interesting so you do it you kind of look at one thing and other things bubble up and one of the most profound things that i identified that came from my research that I never saw coming was that in asking the people about their stories, I went into their background and what happened and forward and everything. And what I identified is they came from families that allowed them to struggle. Mm. A grandparent, a parent saying, you got to get yourself, you know, God help you, but you got to get yourself together. We can do this. You can do this. You can do it. You know, and so I always tell the people, if I had every parent of a two-year-old in front of me, I would beg them, don't make that child's life perfect. You are hobbling them. They will never know how they could overcome and achieve if you keep fixing things for them. Guide them. Support them, but don't make their life perfect. And that's why I'm saying even with this COVID-19, parents, profound opportunity to model behavior that will allow your children to understand what adversity is like and how they can achieve coping skills, resilience, and ultimately, and over time, become better as a result of this.
0: Through the the people that you've worked with, um, I'm sure that you've seen people who have overcome stuff and come out a lot stronger, but there's also people who never really f- like go through the whole process and kind of stay stuck in their struggle. Mm-hmm. Is there a specific stage that you see that most people get stuck in that don't make it through all six stages?
1: Yeah, I think there, there are different places, uh, but I, I would say the big things are really stage two, the turning point. That decision is huge. That decision to move forward is huge. And I would say to you all, you've all had turning points and I can bet you, you can remember the day, the time where you were, when you said, I hate this. I do not want it, but I'm going to move forward. People can remember that. So that's a part that I look at. And that's when I look at people too and say, here's where we need extra help. There's an op- There's something that's stopping you. So we need some extra help. I think the other part to going through that is probably stage four with the adaption adjustment where people, <clears throat> that's a real self-reflection analysis stage. And sometimes if they don't have the opportunity, take the opportunity to really achieve some ideas about the meaning of their suffering and what's gone on. And then I think stage five is you got to get back into life. I don't care if you decide you're going to work for the SPCA or you're gonna, whatever. You got to get back into life. You got to do something. So I think probably the turning point is the first thing. Then maybe four and five, they get a little stuck up in that.
0: Yeah, and it all seems like it comes back to making that personal decision, right? Making the decision that I'm sick of this. I'm going to, you know, hit that turning point. And then even self-reflection, that's even a a self, you know, a personal decision is, am I going to take the time to reflect on what happened and, um, you know, kind of basically take the steps to to make it happen?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting, too, I um, when we were talking about the very beginning, when I did my original research, I interviewed these six people. And then I wrote I wrote a book called Turning, Tra- um, uh, Turning Tragedy to Triumph, Metahabilitation, you know, a contemporary model of rehabilitation. And so uh, when I wrote the book and I had people read it to give feedback, the two things they wanted, they wanted to know. Because I wrote the book two years after my research. Where are those people now? And they wanted pictures. So I was able to re-meet all the six people that I met for, to do my original research. And one of the things, this is another thing I learned about research, I never saw it coming. They never talked about what happened. They just kept saying about, did I tell you what I'm doing now? Did I tell you what I'm doing now? Did I tell you what's happening now? And even now people will say to me, well, what happened? I go, ah, you know, when 30 years ago I died and I had 22 minutes of sleep and I came back and, you know, but this is what, you know, you're just so engaged and excited about what you're doing now. And that's another thing that I can really see where people, they they don't want to live there. They don't identify with that as much as they identify with this part of their life.
2: How how you had your friend that kind of motivated you or pushed you back into the pool in that uh-huh. first instance when she came to you?
1: Sally, Sally Edwards.
2: Sally, me. Sally Edwards. <laughs> if you are someone kind of on the outside, or maybe um, you're someone who's in someone's support system who's dealing with tragedy or, or trauma, how do you know when it is time to kind of give somebody a little push and tell them, Hey, like, I think it's time for you to take the next step. How do how do you kind of walk that fine line of maybe pushing them too soon or knowing when they need to take the next step?
1: That is so good. You probably have a better answer to that than I do, because you have to push people yourselves. And so, you know, I would throw that question back onto you. But I think just in general, when I'm seeing people who are stuck, and what do I mean by stuck, that they're not fine, that they've lost some hope, or they're, they're not finding joy in life, or they're just not moving on and I will, you know, and you really do, you have to challenge them themselves and saying, look at, this isn't helping you. You know, we love and care about you. And I'm noticing that you're sitting in a dark room developing negatives here. And that's, that's not helpful. You know, you were, so you, you, you do just start to look at the fact that they are not, I don't expect them to move forward right away, but you're expecting to see some momentum, something that's coming on. But if they're sort of sitting in that dark place and again, I'm not a therapist, so I don't pretend to do that, but I can be aware of that and say people, sometimes people might need extra help. Like they may need to go to you guys to get extra help to go in with their physical kind of stuff because they're stuck. And I think sometimes with people who go to therapists, but I always tell them too, they'd be very careful about the therapist you go to Mm
2: -hmm.
1: because you want to go to somebody who is real and understands there's a reality to your grief and to your depression, but they can also look at how, how can I facilitate you lifting and moving on with that? And there's a variety of things that they can help you do. But I think it's just looking at people who have lost, either lost hope or they're just sad all the time or they just complain a lot mm-hmm. and they're bitter. That's, yeah, got to get in and see what's going on there.
0: Mm-hmm. That's definitely um, a lot has to do with that, you know, growth mindset or somebody who has more of a closed mindset and doesn't, you know, really again, want to make the decision to change things, you know, on their own. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate uh, the time that you took with us. I think there's a lot that us personally can take away, but our listeners as well. Um, So let's say, you know, somebody's listening who is a clinician or maybe is um, in an organization that could use your help or even just an individual. What's the best way that they can reach out and find more information about what you do?
1: So, the best way is very easy. So, it's my name is Dr. Joyce Michael Flynn. So, you can go on drjmf.com. It's my website drjmf.com. You get on my website and it has a variety of things. And um, I have books and workbooks and wellness workbooks and all sorts of things that can help you move through that. I also have a place where I have a podcast series called Sliver of Hope. Stories of Survival and Growth. And I have the first series I did was the first six people may identify the stages of metahab. Then I did a whole series on athletes. And I use the athletes at Sac State to look at the growth perspective. And then my next series is a special series I have on COVID-19. But yes, so and if you follow me on Instagram, dr.jmf, you can... um, get me on Instagram. So that's good. Um, shoot, I didn't get a chance to talk about, can I say one really important thing that I think would be really good for? Yeah, us? absolutely. Okay. So one of the things that uh, really occurred to me is first of all, um, we didn't get into this, but there's generational resilience. So you really need to know that you can influence the next generation by how you're dealing with things today. And there's some gene expressions and all sorts of things that go on. And you can do another podcast on that if you want. But the other thing I just love is I was watching um, a documentary, State of HBO documentary called State of Play. And that the one was called Happiness. And they looked at athletes and soldiers. So they looked at um, um Michael Strahan and Brett Favre and then Marcus Luttrell and they looked at athletes and so one of the things that's so compelling with you is so they looked at the research from Eisenberger and Lieberman and I they're in Southern California and they did some research on why rejection hurts so they put people through a functional MRI machine So you can see what's happening in the brain in real time. So if you and your listeners can kind of draw a picture in your mind of three characters in a diamond throwing the ball back and forth to each other. And the part of the brain that affects, you know, that lights up or engages itself during happiness, light lit up. So what they did is they put the same people through a functional MRI machine, and they had the same three characters displayed, but they only had two of them throwing the ball back and forth to each other. The third one was not part of it. And what they found was the same sort of neural pathways that engaged during times of happiness also engaged during this painful experience, this rejection. So they look at it and say, one of the things that they can talk about is that we have to recognize when you are no longer a part of things. So whether you're a soldier, an athlete or whatever, your brain is registered engaged in some pain pathway. So you are feeling physical pain. So when I'm talking to first responders, cops, you know, police, sheriffs, athletes, soldiers, all those people, I go, you will experience pain when you are no longer part of your team. And that's a real thing that's happening. And sometimes when you just explain that to people and they understand it, then they'll understand why it is so essential to socialize. And that's one of the biggest things I'll tell you right now, red flag number one, isolation. People need time by themselves to kind of figure stuff out. But if your friends are checking out, they're not going to church, they're not working out, they're not showing up to family events, they're kind of engaged, you better get on that. It's a dangerous time for people. We are social beings. We are meant to live in communities. And those communities are disrupted. You have to adapt and adjust a community so those people are not left out. But so the brain feels not being a part of something in a painful way.
2: That's gold in in a time like this right now.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's been huge for us. You know, obviously we can't be in in the gym um, currently, but you know, we've been doing live classes through Zoom and, you know, everybody still gets to a chance to see each other. And, you know, just for me personally, it's been big to have that community still, but I know our, our um, Hyperthrive members has really appreciated that just being on Zoom and getting to talk to everybody. So, you know, obviously we can't get a lot of FaceTime right now, but in person, but even if you can set up, you know, a Facetime call or a Zoom call, or do something where you're still involved in some part of community, um, that's going to be huge for your mental health and just overall lifestyle in general.
1: Oh yeah! And let me just a shout out, a shout out for you all and being active. I always used to call. I, no, I was, especially when I was doing family practice, I used to call this my E pill, my exercise pill. Mm-hmm. There isn't one thing that physical activity is not gonna help out. There's, I mean, not only from the physical being, but I know we're about mental health, but I talk about when I talk to first responders, especially, and I actually have an uh, article that I wrote about um, mental fitness and resilience in first responders. So I, when I was talking to, when I was doing a presentation to sheriffs and police, I talked to the police chief and I go, these people aren't going to do this. Oh, mindfulness. Well, they're not going to like, that's not going to click with them. I go, let's call it mental fitness training. And I would say to them, you, and as an athlete, you guys all know this, you almost have to be more mentally fit than you are physically fit. Cause that mental part of you, that's, key so mental fitness training and how exercise and physical and I sometimes don't even use the word exercise because people that's like fingernails on a chalkboard I talk about physical activity how physically active you are huge huge in all of that
0: Absolutely. So take her advice, people stay (laughs) engaged with the community, make sure you're getting some movement in your life, whether that's just getting outside and going for a walk or doing some exercise, even if it's five to 10 minutes worth of movement, Um, get that going. So I appreciate you guys listening to this episode of the strength Roots podcast, definitely get on Instagram and get online and check out uh, Dr. Flynn's website and stay connected with her. Um, If you guys have any questions, you can send us a message on Instagram at hyperthriveathletics. But other than that, thanks for coming on, and we will catch you guys next time. Awesome.
1: Thanks, guys.
0: Stay up to date on everything HTA. Follow us now on Instagram at hyperthriveathletics.